morning. Good to see everyone here today. I'm going to start with a question. Why are you here this morning? When you, when you got up, when you were getting ready, did you even think, did you think about as your day was going to unfold to think, why am I going to church today? I was, I was looking online, I found some surveys, some reasons people come to church. Some of it was to see people they know. Uh, some people go to church because they want to be a model of the next generation because they've had kids and the grandparents says you need to be raising those kids in church. Uh, some people because it's just what we do on Sundays. Uh, some because mom and daddy drug me here and they have so for years. Uh, for me, I'm here because Brother Andy asked me to come preach. But it's sometimes life just kind of happens to us. We kind of we're swept along with our habits, with our schedule that just this is what we figured out years ago. And we don't really know, we haven't really thought ahead to what to expect for today. So the big question is, why are you here today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time we can come together as a body of believers, that we can come together look into your word together and hear how you're still speaking to us today. Lord, I ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on this place today. Lord, convict our hearts, prick our consciences, Lord, and give us a great desire to come before your throne on our knees, worshiping you, Lord, and praising you and seeking your holiness. All this is asked in Christ's name. Amen. So in life, we often don't find what we're looking for and sometimes we find what we're not looking for. Like when I came home this weekend, my purpose was for, to come to preach this morning. What I didn't expect was to get a course on how to start building a porch on the front of the house from my father. And I actually learned some new carpentry tricks this weekend. It wasn't what I was looking for, but I'm really glad I was there for it. And if you look in scripture, like today, you see people finding things they weren't looking for. When you think about it, Moses, when he was out in that desert, wasn't looking for a burning bush. Elijah, when he had gone to hide in that cave, he wasn't listening for the voice of God in the still, small voice. Isaiah, when he went to the temple that day, did not expect to have a vision into the very throne room of God. Or Paul, definitely, when he was on the way, um, when he was, uh, when Saul was on the road to Damascus, did not expect to be struck down, and have an encounter with God Himself, with Jesus Christ, asking Him, "Why are you persecuting my people?" So sometimes, amazing experiences find us, because the truth of Scripture seems to be, God is looking for us. The problem is, we're not always looking for God. In fact, God is still seeking us and calling us to look for him. So today, to dive into that, we're going to be looking at a very familiar story to many of you. We're going to be looking to Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And we see that Jesus was not there by chance. There's nothing Jesus did by chance. Jesus was there by spirit-led divine appointment. And the woman thought she was at the well 
just to get water. And she didn't want to see anybody that day, but she met the man that would change her life. So I hope you understand how God, even today, is seeking worshipers who will come and because of his great love and his gift of his salvation, will worship him in spirit and in truth. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 4. While you're turning, I'll kind of give the story of John thus far. Jesus has met a lot of people. Uh, in the first chapter, John just lays out this is who Jesus is in John chapter 1. But we also see that Jesus, we first see him meeting John the Baptist. As John is out baptizing and John declares, you know, he wasn't even worthy of tying Jesus' shoe when he baptized him that day. You see, Jesus meets some men who are John's disciples and he calls those men to follow him. And they do. You see, Jesus with his mother at a wedding. And he secretly does this miracle just because he shows, you see the, his love for the community. You see him, his love for his family. You see Jesus go to the temple and while he's at the temple, he predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. And then we see a man come to Jesus in the dead of night, secretly, to ask him who he is and what he's talking about. Most recently, we'd seen people come to John, the Baptist again, and saying, hey, Jesus is taking your disciples. This man's, you know, getting a big following. And John says, look, I must decrease. He must increase and points that Jesus is the man who's come from heaven, and he has the words of heaven. And so here's where we start our story. So if you read with me in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you look at verse 4, John is very clear on the setting that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Some translations say he had to, but it's this, this is an appointment that Jesus had to keep. Now, John lets us know a little bit in verse, verse 9 that Jews didn't really have dealings with Samaritans. He puts it lightly. You know, you know this background, but Jews and Samaritans had this hatred of each other that it started hundreds of years before when the northern and southern kingdoms were exiled, that the northern kingdom was taken off by the Assyrians, but some of the people were left. And the Assyrians brought their own people to essentially colonize where the northern kingdom had been, and those people intermarried with who was left. And so to the Jews from the southern kingdom who went to Babylon and then returned, those in the northern kingdom were now half-breeds. 
They're half Samaritan, half Assyrian. And while they were gone, since the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, they had built their own temple on Mount Gezerim. And that's where they worshipped. And so when the Jews come back from Babylon, they see this and see that this group of half-breeds who had intermarried couldn't be told from the surrounding people and had their own temple, were living in their land that the, the southern kingdom of Jews considered this is our land. And so there's this entire group and this racial hatred grew up and it, it wasn't just one direction, it was both directions. And so it was a John is putting it lightly when he said they didn't have relations with each other. Most people would have, Jesus was going from Jerusalem, Judea, up to Galilee, and it was a straight shot right through Samaria. But most Jews would cross the Jordan River, walk all the way around through non-Jewish territory, just so they didn't have to go through Samaria. Let me give you a real-world example. Imagine you had to drive from here to Wilmington, North Carolina which is on the coast of North Carolina, but you hated the people of South Carolina so much that you refused to even drive one mile in their state. And so you would drive all the way to Chattanooga and then go north and drive the entire length of North Carolina just to get to Wilmington. That's essentially what most Jews would do just to not step foot in this place. Well, Jesus not only has stepped foot in the place, he stopped in a town. Because most people, even if they went through, they would just go through as fast as they could. Jesus stops. He sits down by a well. But the question was, why did he stop? Why did he stop? Because if we look at verse 4, and even verse 1, it says, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard, and then, but he, but he, Jesus, needed to go through Samaria. As we see presented in the Gospels, we have two reasons why Jesus needed to go. One, Jesus never stopped being in relationship of the Trinity. He never stopped being in relationship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he was the will of the Father, the will of the Son, and the will of, the Christ, of Jesus were one. He was here to do the will of the Father. And you often see in the Gospels, Jesus goes off to pray to reaffirm, to recommune that relationship because he was fully God and fully human. And so in this, Jesus has to go to this place because it is the will of the Father. But also, Jesus had to go there because there was a woman he had to meet. Because as you see constantly through the Gospels, there were people who Jesus had to just step into their lives and change them in miraculous ways. Jesus had to meet this woman. So question again, why are you here today? So picture this scene Jesus has. You've been walking since dawn. Dirt roads in the country, dry area. It's noon now, and the sun is just beating down on your head. You get to this little small village, you see there's a well there. So you sit down to rest for a minute. It's odd because there's a town a little distance away. You can hear voices, you can hear the market going, you can hear people going about their business. But where you are, it's quiet, no one's around. This is 
where Jesus is walking into. We see both this humanity and divinity on display here. One, because of that divine appointment, he had to be here. Humanly, he was hot and he was tired. And he needed to sit down. John even tells us that. So we look again at 7 through 10. While he's sitting there, because of verse 6, Jesus is wearied from his journey. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. We don't get right away just how shocking this is. Even, even to John's audience, how shocking this would have been. That Jesus, a Jewish man who was a rabbi, had followers coming after him, a teacher. So that means he knew the law and lived it is showing up in Samaria, and number one, he's speaking to a Samaritan. And number two, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman. He didn't know if she was married or not. She didn't know if he was married or not. It was just the two of them by that well. This would have been shocking to everyone. Now, currently John hasn't told us why she's there by herself. We'll get that a little later. But at the moment, just this is shocking. And he has the, honestly, he has the gall to say, give me a drink. Because think about the situation from her standpoint. There's this guy sitting by a well just sitting on the edge of it. He doesn't have a bucket. He doesn't have a jar. But she's brought a jar. She is there for the task at hand. She's ready to work. And he's just there. And so sometimes we we read the Bible, what's what's a good way to put it, a little nicer than it is, (laughs) that everybody in this situation would have been uncomfortable. This woman would have been thrown off because she did not want to see anybody when she got there so why was she there that day and I think we can see from she brought a water jar she was there to get water also I think she was there to avoid everybody else if she was coming at the middle of the day at noon most people when they draw drew water would do it at the beginning of the day to start their day's work or at the end of the day both in the cool times of the day when everybody was going to be home Nobody went to the well at noon. And so, but we have to think, why was she really there? And so look at verse 10 again. When she asked, why would you ask me? Jesus answered, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is to say, that says it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus lays out why he's there in this statement. He is there, one, to declare who he is. Because she doesn't know who he is, but he's there to let her know. And two, he's there to offer a gift. She was there for just plain old fresh water, which we all need to live. But Jesus was there to address a deeper spiritual issue. In fact, an issue that had divided these people on racial grounds. How do you be reconciled to God? And Jesus was there to say, you guys don't know it, but it's me. And Jesus says, the water I give, it doesn't just take care of this physical issue. This is spiritual, living water. Let's look at verse uh, 11 through 18 to see her reaction. The woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor have to come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. It's, it's amazing to see in this exchange, because this is two people. You know, sometimes we, we look at the scripture and we're like, this is far away. Another. These are two human beings having a conversation. She's trying to figure Jesus out, and he knows exactly who she is. And at first, when you see her question of essentially, well, how are you going to draw this water? You've got nothing to draw the water with. Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's essentially asking him, who do you think you are ordering me around? He's not from there. He doesn't have the proper equipment to even get a drink of water. And who is he? A Jewish man looking down at her. She knows where she came from. But the answers are there. If he answers back, he says, you know, my water's better than Jacob's. And it's amazing, as an audience reading John, we know that he is greater than Jacob. It's amazing. John even lays this out specifically. If you look back uh, in John chapter 3, one of the things that John the Baptist says about Jesus in John 3.33 is that he who has received Sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> John, 30, John 3, 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So in an odd way, John is referencing Genesis there. I don't know if you remember the story of Jacob. Jacob was a, when he was a younger man, he got in a lot of trouble. Some of us can identify with that. And he had to leave home, but along the way, God pursued him. And one night, Jacob had a dream. He put a rock under his head to sleep, and he saw this ladder up to heaven. And he saw messengers of God going up and down the ladder. And God spoke to him that day. And so Jacob sees this vision of coming and going from heaven. And then when John speaks about who Jesus is, John the Baptist, he essentially says, the one that Jacob saw, the place that he saw, well, Jesus is the one who actually came from heaven. He doesn't just have the vision. He is actually the one bringing the word of God to us. So John has already established, this Jesus, he is greater than Jacob. 
He's not just the one who, vis- who has the vision of heaven. He is the man from heaven. And so when Jesus says, when Jesus doesn't have to answer but speaks about the water, the truth is there that he is greater than their father, her father Jacob. And in fact, his water, because of who he is, is far better than any water Jacob could give her. Now, she may have been asking, Sir, give me this water that I made. I have to come again. Because honestly, who wants to go to the well every day at noon? That everlasting water would be great. But Jesus is addressing that further need. That deeper need that she had. Because he cuts right to the core. Because he looks at her And he reveals what he knows about her. He says, uh, go, call your husband, bring him here. Essentially, the the faux pas, the the difficulties that have been addressed already with man and woman, it would have been, the next step would have been, hey, I'm going to speak to you and your husband together. That was the normal thing of the time in in first century Judea. Was this was how the introduction was made. But he also knew exactly who she was. He knew her answer before he asked that question. And she looks at him, and John puts it mildly. He says, and the woman answered and said, I have no husband. He doesn't convey the the coldness of that response. Because everything else she said, I don't know if you've noticed, has been, you know, this is a knowledgeable woman. This is a woman who speaks, has so far interacted with Jesus openly, and then this response is just what is needed. I have no husband. The, you know, it was the hottest part of the day, but there were probably icicles showing up from her voice. This was cold. I have no husband. And Jesus' response, ooh, this had to hurt her. Because this is a stranger And his response is, he lays out her life. Not just the current events, but everything that's happened before this. He lays out, well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. As in, you definitely did not lie. The, The language of the one who is not your husband it's unclear whether or not it's she's living with a guy or she's currently with someone else's husband. But he lays it out all bare in front of her. He knows her to the core. In this, John has finally revealed, this is why she's here at noon. She doesn't want to see anybody. Because in that day, a woman who is outside of the, the family bounds, the marriage bounds, was considered just apart from culture. You were not, you were looked down on. You were the one that everyone looked at and said, well, that's, that's that woman. We know who she is. That's why she's there in the middle of the day when nobody else is there. She didn't expect to see anybody there. She didn't want to see anybody there. She's gotten there, and there's this guy 
a Jewish guy asking her to get him water. And then now he said, he's laid out exactly who she is, what her deepest hurt is. But that's why she was there that day. She thought it was to get water. She was there to meet the man who would know her completely, who would know every aspect of her and love her unconditionally. And every one of us is just like her. So that's why she was there. So why are you here today? So let's continue 19, verse, uh, verse 19 through 26. And the woman said to him, Sir, I have perceived that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, or ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is an amazing end to this exchange. Because Jesus has laid bare her soul. And her response, once again, our Bibles are a little polite with her response. Because she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I don't think it was that polite. It's, imagine the emotional weight with that question. Many of us have been in that situation where someone has just laid bare a truth in our life. We've gone, you know, we've gone to meet a friend. We're even asking for advice. And we say our problem is this. And we're like, oh yeah, this is what's going on in my life. This is the issue I'm having with this person. And they say, look, I know you and this is what's going on. And there's just, you stop. Now, oftentimes I will say, if you've you've worked in ministry or had a Bible in your hand, somebody at those times will point you to a difficult theological issue to try and move the conversation. Because they're essentially asking, well, who are you to ask me that? Who are you to point that out? So imagine the woman is standing there. Tears are now streaming down her face. And she responds, oh yeah? Well, you know that. How dare you come in here like this? I know my life. I know who I am. And I know how to worship God correctly. I know what I'm doing. Because her theological question is an interesting one. It's about where is the proper place of worship? Because the Samaritan said it was on this mountain. And she could have, where she was standing, Jacob's well is kind of in this mountain valley between this area of hills. She could have pointed at the mountain where the ruins of the temple were because 200 years before, the Jews had come in 
and torn their temple to the ground. And they still worshipped up on that mountain, but their beautiful temple they had built while the Jews were gone was just rubble. All this time, the temple down in Jerusalem, you know, had been rebuilt by Ezra, had been added onto by Herod, was this beautiful place. And that's where the Jews went to worship. People came from miles around there. And so there's a lot of deep-seated years of, of resentment here. Asking this question, especially after what he said, the thing that hurts her the most about her own life. And so he responds. I love the fact that he responds to her question in the most beautiful way possible. Because he doesn't scream at her. He doesn't pull out his Jewish history textbook and give her a lecture about why the Samaritans are wrong. He, he essentially starts with, you know what, you got a good point. <laughs> That, you know what, believe me, the hour is coming where, you know, you guys aren't going to worship there, and honestly, they're not going to worship down there either. So he looks at her and he says, you know what, yeah, you guys are wrong and we're wrong too. Which, amazingly, is disarming. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a discussion with somebody, and they are prepared for you to just yell at them. They're prepared for you to come back at them with full force, and then you agree with something they say. Just how much it, it just puts them off there on their back foot. And so she probably leaned in at that point. Wait, this is not going how I expected from a Jewish man as her, a Samaritan woman. He probably pointed at Gesserim. Yeah. Eventually, that's not going to be the place to worship, but you know what? Other direction, Jerusalem, not either. But then he points out, he says, you know what, let's talk about this. Look, the Samaritans worship what they don't know. Their, their understanding of God is incomplete because the Samaritans only held that the first five books of the Bible were Scripture. Genesis to Deuteronomy. They didn't hold that any of the prophets or any of the, the poetry, any of the writings were Scripture. Just those first five books. Now imagine, the, think about the things we know about Jesus from the rest of the Old Testament, from the Psalms, from Isaiah, from all the prophets. Think about all those things that they were missing. And he says, look, the Jews are right about one thing. Salvation is going to come out of the Jews. As in, God promised to Abraham way back when that the seed of Abraham was going to be the Savior, was going to bless the world. And so they're right about that. But here's the thing neither one of you guys have thought about. The hour is coming, and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such worshipers. The amazing thing is, the Father had been seeking worshipers from creation. If you think about it, if you read the creation account in Genesis, that's why he created people. God created humans to worship him. That is our entire purpose. And you see over the years, if you read the Old Testament, the heartbreaking tales of both Judea, the, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, 
of people who stopped seeking God, who didn't even expect to see God. If you read the prophets, it's sad that they will say, you know, you go into the temple and you sacrifice, but honestly, you're just ending up with blood on your hands. You're not doing anything. You're not expecting God to even show up. And Jesus is saying, both the Samaritans and the Jews have gotten to that place. They're not even expecting God to show up anymore when they go to worship him. He says, that's not even worship. You're just going to the temple or you're going to your mountain. That's it. The Father is seeking worshipers. And Jesus, we missed this, the hour is coming and now is. Jesus is saying, you know that thing that's been promised, even to the Samaritans that only read the first five books, because Jesus has promised in those first five books. He says, this thing you're supposed to have been looking for all of these years is here. And you're not even looking. He says, essentially, this is why you're here. This is why Jesus was here. True worship isn't about having the right mountain. And I mean, we've sometimes, you know, we make that mistake. We have, well, true worship is the, the angle of the podium up the front, is the color of the carpet, is you know, how we angle our seating, what, you know, exactly what style of worship music we have. True worship is not about your mountain. True worship is about the spirit of worship. Having the right spirit and the right truth. Because that's the worshipers God is speaking to those who come and worship him in spirit and in truth. It's exactly what, John, uh, what Jesus told Nicodemus. Nicodemus should have known what Jesus was talking about. In John 3, 5 and 6, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, in a different way to this woman at the well, you must be born again. And he says, the amazing thing is, now you can't. This thing you've been looking for, this thing you've needed so many years, can't happen. Finally. Because born again is also, the phrase is born from above. And so all of these things, John has been presenting, who is this Christ? Why did Jesus come? You know, at the end of John, he gives it, I give you these words so that you might believe and have, and in Christ, have eternal life. Everything John says in his entire gospel is to that end, so that you would believe and have eternal life. And the man from above has come so that he can give the living water instead of, honestly, our dead water that we have on our own. Give us a living spirit living water, so that we can come. And now, for those of us who believe, it's the amazing thing that happens. We can now worship him as we were intended to. We can now worship him as we were created to. Instead of arguing about which mountain is correct, we can come to him in the right spirit. And 
And at the end, this is what Jesus confirms. This is one of the few times Jesus just so blatantly and obviously says what he says here. The woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, and he will come, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Because the Samaritans were looking for another Moses. They were looking for a man who talked to God, went in the presence of God. They were looking for this spiritual leader that would bring in this new age, that would make all things new again. And Jesus looked at her right in the eye and said, I'm him. That's, I don't know, I just can't imagine being her that day and just hearing that from his lips. Oh, <laughs> how, do you, how do you react to that? This one who's been promised for thousands of years is sitting here in front of me and wants me to get him a drink of water? He knows me to my core and he's still standing here talking to me? That's the amazing thing. Jesus was there to openly declare himself as Messiah. Openly declare who he was. Declare him the Christ, the Messiah, and the Savior. That's why he was there. She was there to hear that. Because as all of us need, as all of us are like her, we need that as well. And it's not just a one-time thing. We don't need to just one day hear that Jesus is the Christ, our Savior. That's every day. Every day, we need to expectantly wonder, who is our Savior? What has he done for me? What has he done for us as a body? And then the story doesn't stop there. As we come to the conclusion of the story, I want you to see what the woman did when she understood exactly who Jesus was. The disciples kind of show up and interrupt and stand there. But the next thing we see from the woman in verse 28 through 30 is the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they all went out of the city and came to him, came to Jesus. Sometimes we gloss over the fact she left her water pot. The, the thing you needed to go to the well to get water, her entire purpose for that day, she dropped it. Because she had been so profoundly affected by her encounter with Jesus that she dropped everything. She dropped everything and she had to go tell. She had to go bring people to Jesus. Because think about it, it says she went and said to the men, now Sychar wasn't a big town. There's a good chance among the men she told, some of them were those five men that she'd been with previously. But she was willing, she had been humbled by her experience with the God of the universe. And so there's a power in just seeing that everything that had been important to her that morning when she left, you know, ignoring the, the rest of the people in the town, getting that pot of water secretly so that she didn't meet anybody, had been blown away by the truth of this man she met, the Messiah. And she went and she challenged him and she says, you've got to come see him too. So here's the question. When was the last time 
You were so prof- profoundly affected by a time of coming together in corporate worship that you just had to drop the rest of your plans for the day and go tell somebody. When was the last time you got up in the morning and prayed and were reading Scripture and you saw something? The Lord spoke to you so much. You had to just change your schedule for the morning and go tell somebody. When was the last time you met Jesus and you had to go tell somebody? So why are you here today? Did you come this morning thinking, well, my purpose to come to the worship service is to meet with God? Did that thought cross your mind? I'm going to be honest myself, many Sundays I go to church, and I'm in ministry, and I don't purposely think that. And it's heartbreaking. Because I should think when I wake up on Sunday morning, I'm going to meet with God. Or when I open my my Bible, when I'm at home praying, my thoughts should be, I'm going to meet my Savior. And He's going to change my day. I'm going to start my day, and He's going to bring to light these sins that I've been holding on to that I need to repent of. I'm going to meet my Savior, and He's going to show me people I've wronged that I need to go ask their forgiveness. When I pray, do I expect God to act in the things I pray on? You know, when I ask for God to move mightily and start a revival and bring people to the Lord, do I expect that? And many times we're like the woman at the well. We don't. We, we, we just want to go about our business. Honestly, we don't want to see anybody. We just want to go about our day, just get through it. But the question is, as I keep asking, so why are you here today? Those watching on the live stream, why are you watching today? Will you be here next week? And here's the question, will you be alone? That's what I want you to take from this. This woman was so profoundly affected by her meeting with Jesus that she couldn't help but not go and bring people to him. Do you desire that for your life? Do you desire Jesus to lay bare the sin that you're holding on to? Tear that away so there's nothing left but reliance on him. Those of you who haven't met Jesus yet, that's the first point. That is where you start, where this dead spirit that is inside of you has to be made alive in Christ. And it is just faith in Christ, who he is, his death, burial, resurrection, repentance of your sins. And you too can know this man who met this woman at the well. The man who knows you unconditionally and loves you anyway. And loves you so much that he chases after you. And for those of you who are Christians, who've been Christian for years, this is a time, especially in the context of the world as it is now, as we're in upheaval, things are different. Take this time to say, all right, do we need to go back just to the same old, same old of I come every week because that's what I do? And I read my Bible because somebody says I've got to read this chapter of Romans for next week's lesson. Or 
is this a time we can say, wait. In this time of upheaval, God is calling me to get to know him anew and to love him with the fervor that he has placed in our heart and to have this great desire bubbling out of you, I got to go tell somebody else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that you are God who meets us where we are. Lord, that you so many, so many years ago came to that woman at the well that you should not have spoken to in a city you shouldn't have been walking to, but you had to be in. Lord, I just thank you so much for your dedication to the mission, your, your mission to bring together worshipers throughout the earth. Lord, I ask if your spirit is working on someone's heart, Lord, that they would respond, Lord, that they would come to you today, either to come to know you the first time and place their faith in you, Lord, or to let you move into their heart, to tear down the idols that they have placed in the corners of their heart, Lord, the, the taking for granted that you are the Lord of the universe who comes to know them, has called them to be a worshiper, Lord, and that you would work in them mightily, they would drop everything, Lord, and to bring people to you. I just thank you for your word. I thank you for this group of believers. I thank you for all who are watching today. Lord, just move in them. And Lord, thank you so much for being our amazing Savior. I'll see you in Christ's name. Amen.